So since we since we talked last, I started and actually have almost finished Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Oh, okay. Have you ever read it? No, I've, it's, I it's I don't know if I have it on my shelf or not, but I have heard of it, and he's considered highly, you know, uh, talented or whatever. Yeah, so it's, so I had read, in high school I read The Road, and I read, well, actually the first one I read was No Country for Old Men, because I read it when the movie came out. Oh, okay. And then I read The Road, but then I hadn't read any Corbett McCarthy since then, and then, like a couple weeks ago, a, a YouTuber that I watch a lot of, named uh, Windigoon, he made a video on Blood Meridian, and it was like a five-hour video where he like basically covers the entire story. Yeah, so but at the beginning of the... And he does a bunch of analysis and stuff of it in okay. his video, but at the beginning of the video, he's like, if you haven't read this book, like go read it first and then come back yeah, and watch yeah. the video. He's like, because, you know, I, I can't do it justice, like the imagery yeah. and stuff justice like Cormac McCarthy can, but with the disclaimer of like, it's a, it's a very like intense and pretty violent book okay and there is a lot of stuff in there that's like directly violent and then a lot of stuff where like like you're reading between the lines it's like mm. even way worse huh. but yeah so yeah i've got uh i think three three or four more chapters left okay so did you finish did you finish the video or you kind of you did put the video on pause no i i haven't yeah i haven't yeah, gone okay. back and watched the video yet nice because i wanted to i wanted to get the full the full story you know no no spoilers or anything, right? And you're digging it. It's it's really good. It's really good. and it takes place in uh, it's in the old west. It's in actually like it's like New Mexico, Arizona, California, but like all along the border. So they're in Mexico too, and it's like in the in the 1850s. Okay, so it ties in with uh, what we're going to talk about today a little bit, just a couple decades earlier then, huh? Yeah, it's it's a couple decades. It's a couple decades earlier before what we're talking about, but it's. It's same uh, it is the same, yeah, the same setting, and it's kind of interesting. Like, so they talk about, uh, like, there's one point where they go to, they're in Tucson, like, causing a bunch of problems, or like one guy gets arrested in San Diego, okay. and they have to like leave. But yeah, so it's it's a lot of like Southern Arizona, Southern California, Northern Mexico, really violent cowboy stuff, and it's it's interesting too because it it also kind of shows like the so there's you have the Americans who are in that area at the time. And they're fighting with the Mexicans at the time because this is like right after or during the Mexican American War, right after. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. right after because they there's like an it's like an outlaw. One of the first groups that this the main character, the kid, gets involved with is a group of what are called filibusters, where they're basically like an outlaw band of former soldiers, but they're all still together as this unit, and they're like they will go into Mexico to like get territory and land for themselves. Like against the orders of the United States government, oh. so it's like the the Mexicans are fighting these Americans, but then at the same time they're both fighting the Apaches who also live who who lived in that area for thousands of years, who are like this is no this is our land both of you guys right and they're just they're killing everybody, which is kind of what we see in the film with the threat of the Apaches. Yeah, no, yeah, that's actually a, yeah the perfect way to segue into today's film and you do forget like with what you're saying like when these borders have recently changed like it's, it's not we're just so used to like the borders we inherited and grew up with that you forget that like for so many centuries and decades they were in flux and being negotiated and fought over and that you kind right. of end up with yeah anyway it's it's uh yeah stuff we take for granted for sure so yeah today's film is the 1939 john ford 
classic Western stagecoach. And it is not a specific true story. It does not actually include any specific historical figures, although they do mention the Apache figure Geronimo, which Logan will talk right. about in detail. Um, so we'll talk about the movie here briefly, and then we can kind of just talk about some of the larger historical stuff. So this, this is kind of the quintessential Western. Big time. It is. Uh, it, it's so it, It's not even that slow, although I did fall asleep while watching it a little bit but uh I, i'm gonna say that was more about i was just really tired and i, I had, was gonna say that was probably that was probably your fault yeah yeah fault. yeah no it's <laughs> no it's actually not that slow for 1939 and what was real wasn't there another movie that you said you fell asleep during oh my gosh this is gonna bug like recently was it sicario was it Sicario that you said that you were you were watching and you fell asleep during? Oh yes, and I never actually got okay. right back around to seeing it. That was right. That right. was me. I was just tired. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's just to to kind of put uh, put some context there. What movies Rich can fall asleep during? Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's boring because Sicario is definitely not a movie that like I would fall asleep during. Right, right. I was just exhausted. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes you put on the movie necessarily at the at the best time. And uh, I apologize, my microphone was not in front of me until just now. I guess if Logan didn't notice, hopefully the listener does not notice. But yeah, he just had, so let, uh, yeah, I don't even know where to start here. So, but if you just think about every Western trope, and it's almost like, you know, the experience that I talk about with Casablanca, I watch Casablanca now, and it just seems like, oh, it's so cliche. It's like, no, this is where it all started. And so everything about Stagecoach seems like, yeah, been there, done that a million times. It's like, no, right. this is what started so many of those ideas yeah and and it's it's kind of it's what launched uh not necessarily launched the career of john wayne because he was in movies before this but i think this is the last movie that john wayne was in where he didn't have top billing well so and actually he had had probably yes but he had also had top billing before in lesser films so yeah he had been acting for almost a decade or more right but he wasn't famous yet he hadn't he hadn't hit it big and this launched john wayne as like the quintessential american western star like right. basically from this point on, like he, he would make other movies where he wasn't in Westerns, but like that's the vast majority of his career from this right. point on. Right. And we, we've talked about the phrase, you know, it takes 10 years to make an overnight success. So he had been working for that decade and then Stagecoach was the overnight success that made John Wayne, John Wayne. It, and you can right. see it watching this movie. He is the young, lovable outlaw with the heart of gold and just has that exactly. presence about him. And it's like, who is this guy? And so, yeah, he'd been yeah. acting before, but not in anything mainstream enough to make him kind of become the guy, which he became after Stagecoach. And this was, so there was there was a lot of uh, really popular westerns during the silent film era, but then they had kind of, the popularity of those movies had kind of tapered off by the time you get to the end of the 1930s. But then when this movie comes out, it basically like relaunches the Western as a yeah, genre yeah. for the next, you know, 15 years. Yeah. Or even more if you think about what John Wayne himself. Yeah. That's, that's true. Yeah. Like, yeah, even even farther. So it's it's like interesting, you know, we talk about like the layers of history. So like we're going to talk about like the actual oh. history of like when this movie takes place. But also this movie itself like is Historical, a right, piece right. of history. Right. Yeah. In in the, the film industry. Yeah, it's a 100 slash 86 on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it got seven Oscar nominations and winning for Best Supporting Actor. Thomas Mitchell is the drunk doctor who's also uh, Uncle Billy in It's a Wonderful Life which is yeah. where I recognize it from, and also one for best score slash music. And again, the score almost seems cliche. Like, 
Right. He's like, oh, I've heard this music a million times. Even if you've never seen or even if you've never heard of Stagecoach, you've heard the music. And it's yeah, right. just kind of crazy for a movie that that old. And uh, this was actually also a, you know, side Oscar side note here. It was a crazy stacked year. So even though this was, you know, 84 years ago, a lot of the films from 1939 are still very well known. So you have like Stagecoach, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, we talked about Drums Along the Mohawk on this podcast, not as well known, but one we've discussed. Yeah. Uh, you had big time adaptations of classic novels, Weathering Heights, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, of Mice and Men. And then all that's before you get to The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind that were also this same year. Like this year right. was just that. Uh, Stage Show probably wins Best Picture in a lot of years, but uh, that wasn't happening this year. Yeah, just happened to come out the same year. Just like uh, as far as like direction too, like John Ford probably is getting is getting an Oscar win if he if oh right if it comes out any other year right right because he had won before and probably after but yeah he just got nominated this year and didn't win oh the other thing I was going to mention on on John Wayne himself was supposedly John Wayne said his iconic on screen persona just like that way he talked the way he walked just the John mm-hmm. Wayne ness of it that persona. He claims is from channeling Wyatt Earp, who he knew in real life. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it seems like there's not much overlap there. But no, when John, uh, sorry, when Wyatt Earp died, John Wayne was already 21 years old. Yeah, because Wyatt Earp died in, in the 20s. Right. Like it was 1920 right. something. Yeah. And John Wayne was born in 1907. So like there is considerable overlap. And like they didn't know each other super well, but I think one of the actors or whatever that john wayne was kind of learning under that guy was good friends with wyatt earp and that's how john wayne got to know him a little bit so wyatt earp died only 10 years before this movie came out right <laughs> he died in 1929 yeah that's crazy right yeah so it's interesting to think because we don't you know we with the think of the depictions we see you know in like tombstone of wyatt earp it's like well well according to john wayne the real wyatt earp might have been like John Wayne is in all of his westerns. Right, yeah. Which is, yeah, food for thought, I guess. This movie's also, uh, apparently was very influential in the the early, like, film language of uh, Orson Welles. Okay, okay. Apparently, he, it was like his favorite, his favorite director was John Ford. Okay. And like, and he apparently, like, was said to, in interviews to have watched Stagecoach, like, f- upwards of 40 or 50 times. Huh. It's like one of his favorite movies. And then for those who have seen The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's most recent film, John Ford was a big influence for him as well. And watching The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance shows up in that film and stuff. So, yeah, very, very influential director there. So the tagline on the poster for the film says, A powerful story of nine strange people. And... I feel like especially for a movie this old, it does a really good job of giving us nine very unique characters. Like no two people feel like they could be interchangeable. Like there's very there's nine very distinct personalities. And I don't we don't need to like name all of them or by name, but uh I do want to give the rundown of who these nine people are. So you have the prostitute who's just got ran out of town. You got the stagecoach driver who talks of marrying his Mexican sweetheart. And of course he's played by Andy Devine, who I meant to actually talk about in more detail when we were, when we talked about in old Chicago, he's that guy with that, well, well you know, that, that kind of very raspy mm-hmm. uh, voice that is su- super iconic. Um, you have the, 
tall, thin, dark man of honor who I'm unsure what his profession is, but he's played by John Carradine, as in father of, you know, all the famous Carradine actors from the last uh, couple decades. The drunk doctor we mentioned who won an Oscar. The prim and proper military wife who's just on this trip to go find her husband. The nerdy whiskey salesman from Kansas City, Kansas. People say Kansas City, Missouri, and he always corrects him. He's like, well, no, Kansas. Yeah. The law and order sheriff that's going along because there might be trouble along the way. The corrupt elitist banker who has the line, we should run a businessman for president, (laughs) which I thought was interesting. And then, of course, we mentioned the honorable outlaw, uh, the Ringo Kid, played by John Wayne. So he has just nine very distinct characters, and they're thrown, again, they're all strangers thrown together here on this stagecoach crossing through Apache territory. And it makes sense, too, that you'd want to travel together, make a whole caravan out of it be, just for, for safety. So you don't mm-hmm. can't just catch a plane or get on the highway in your car. You're going to travel right. through open country. And like you mentioned, that talks about in the book Blood Meridian, that's very hostile country with the Apaches not liking it that other people are in their territory. So again, the story is all fictional. It's pretty straightforward. They expect to have soldiers kind of escorting them along the way. Their destination is Lordsburg, New Mexico. And when they get to their first pit stop, they were expecting to have more soldier, soldiers continue on with them. But those soldiers are out doing something else. And so they basically have to decide, well, these soldiers have to go back to Arizona or where we started from. Uh, it says Tonto, Arizona on the Wikipedia page, but I couldn't really find exactly where that is. It looks like it's made just northeast of Phoenix, if that was correct. Because it's not a city today. It's more like a area there Yeah, by the by whatever lake that was. Anyway, so yeah, they do decide to go on now without soldiers. So it's just the stagecoach and the people on it by themselves just as they go from like, you know, fort to fort or pit stop to pit stop, just hoping they can make it to Lordsburg safe. And that's that's essentially the movie is the adventure of this trip. Yeah. And it's it's also interesting too. like, I, I don't think that this was the first movie to do this, but it's probably at least, I mean, up to this point was like the the most popular movie to do this where you yeah. have a bunch of like mismatched characters right, that right. are all just like in one place at the same time just like sorting through their differences making life decisions talking about you know philosophical ideas and stuff and then that is basically like a separate genre of, like this is a western but that that like oh, style right. of storytelling right. is then copied a million times also Right. The plot point isn't like when we get to say the searchers, it's like we're trying to find this person or we're trying to catch this outlaw. It's like, no, that's not the goal. The goal is just to get to this place, which means the story is just the people. And right. so, yeah, it probably wasn't the first to do that, but it's the first to do it this well to become right. just so popular and so iconic. Like it, it, yeah, it holds up in the sense that it's still a really good movie. Right. Obviously, the idea of just painting the Native Americans with the broad brush of they're the bad guy doesn't hold up well. Right. But but the film quality itself is good. I, and it's even kind of like a, you don't really notice it until you think about it. But like The Breakfast Club is like the same movie. Exactly. Or or, or Titanic is yeah. the same movie. Right. It's like just these, you know, a bunch of people just like in the same place. The overarching plot is not complicated. You're just going from here to here. Or like you're just, you know, in detention or whatever. Right. Like that's not complicated, but it's the all the character interactions. So like that yeah, the fact that this movie kind of popularized that style of storytelling too is like Right. Or or even going back something uh, not not quite the same, but you think of something like 
Canterbury Tales, where you have a bunch of people on a boat telling their stories. So exactly. they don't yeah. go as much into their individual stories here. It's more about their current state interacting with each other, which is not what Canterbury Tales is, I guess. But yeah, but it's a similar kind of thing. Yeah, and so again, that's that's essentially the movie. We don't need to spoil it. Not that it's it's fairly predictable just because it is so iconic and you've quote seen this movie before. But right. it is really well done, and I do, I do recommend it. Like it, it it's a it's a really good movie, and you can find it for free on YouTube as well. Y- yes, and it's and it's uh and it's pretty short. Yeah, so it's like an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. So and yeah, just interesting how many familiar faces there is for uh for a movie this old. I did want to just just because he has shown up and you know recently twice here now, Andy Devine, and I meant to talk about him more last time. So where I first got familiar with his voice was that animated Robin Hood that Disney did night from 1973 that I watched. Mm-hmm. When, I remember watching when I was little and he's Friar Tuck and just, again, I shouldn't even try to imitate his voice. But if, if, if you hear any device voice, you're like, Oh yeah, that guy. And right. so his first thought that his voice would be like a liability when we got into get into like talkies that like, Oh shoot, you, you're a, you know, big kind of, He's a character actor. Like he's not a leading man guy. He's definitely more of like a sidekick type type figure. Yeah. Kind of, you know, he, I think he's even like a former college football player and all those kinds of things. But his voice, like, oh shoot, well he might not be able to act. But it actually was the reverse. His voice is so iconic. He's the perfect sidekick character to add to any western or any movie you're kind of doing in the 30s, 40s, 50s because his voice is just so so iconic and just became his calling card and supposedly it's the result of a childhood injury like that he claimed he was basically just like running around the house when he was little with something in his mouth and fell and it like pierced up into like the top of his mouth oh really and like permanently altered his his voice yeah yeah don't know exactly but that's what he claimed and i don't think anyone has a strong reason to doubt it other than it's like really would that do that much damage or anyway it almost almost sounds like he's whistling all the time in the back of his throat kind of thing yeah it's interesting too because he is like he is kind of a bigger guy. Like he yeah. looks like he would sound like John Goodman when he talks. Right, right. But then it's I, I want to yeah. That's that's interesting that that was you know people initially thought that that was going to be a liability, but then it turns out that 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 kind of incongruity between his appearance and the way that his voice sounds is actually makes him more interesting to watch on screen. Right now, again, he, yeah, he's never going to be the lead detective as a Sam Spade type figure in film noir with that voice. Right. But he has his own niche. Exactly, exactly. And he's, yeah, if you need that kind of lovable, funny side character, he's your guy. And was for decades in so many films, even if he's not necessarily a household name today, everyone kind of should recognize his voice. Um, all real quick here, let me just, I have a couple notes on Lordsburg, New Mexico, just because it is a real place. The town itself was brand new in 1980, sorry, in 1980. <laughs> 1880 i always do that 1880 which is the year the film was set so the film was set in 1880 as they're doing this trek of a few hundred miles from arizona to lordsburg new mexico but that's yeah town would have been brand new then basically it's just was a railroad stop town so it just kind of mm-hmm. developed as the railroad was coming through this part of the country and essentially that seems to be its role today it's a pit stop town on interstate 10 with just a couple thousand, three thousand, I think under three thousand people there. It's in the southwest corner of this of, of New Mexico, so only sixty five miles north of the Mexican border. They claim that Billy the Kid worked uh, at a local restaurant washing dishes, dishes back in the day, and yeah, that that's their destination. Again, I just just wanted to kind of mention it because it, it is a real place, not a, not a made up town for the city, even though all the characters are are made up. And is this 
is this the first time that we've been in New Mexico on our timeline? Uh, yeah, at least this specifically, it's, it's possible things have passed. Well, we mentioned Santa Fe when we talked about oh, okay. the film Santa Fe yeah. Trail. We didn't do a deep dive on it. Yeah, I will say, yeah. But Santa Fe, but I'm saying, is, is Santa Fe Trail, though, like that... Is in Kansas. <laughs> right, that, that, that movie is set in Kansas. Like, they never went to, they never go to New Mexico. Correct, correct. But we had talked about Santa Fe being really old, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, just in, 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 yeah, so New Mexico in general... I don't really have a ton here. Obviously, Spanish explorers made it through what is now New Mexico in the 16th century, you know, pretty early on with the European exploration. Uh, They did find ruins of native cities from a few hundred years earlier. They end up, even back then in the 1500s, they're already butting heads with the Apaches, like you mentioned. Yeah. That would go on for a long time. When Mexico won independence from Spain, New Mexico was just one of its states up north, like we did talk about with Texas more extensively in the past when the u.s got new mexico uh in 1848 after the mexican-american war then obviously that's when americans started coming in so just you know 32-ish years before this film is when you would have you know americans start settling and then yeah we talked about it with santa fe trail which was set the decade after the u.s got it as we start running a railroad through the existing town of santa fe yeah just in general we just kind of see how the country is expanding west and putting in all these services to, you know, serve the population that's moving out there for new and different opportunities and open land. Of course, this probably isn't the best farmland, but people still are kind of always going to be spreading out into new new territories. Yeah, so I, I don't have a ton about New Mexico beyond that. The most significant thing, I think, to talk about here is maybe the, the Apaches and Geronimo. So we never actually see him specifically in the film. Right, they just kind of name drop him. Right, they repeatedly mention Geronimo is the main threat when we're worried about all these Apache attacks. It's Geronimo, Geronimo, Geronimo is almost mentioned more than the Apache people as a whole. So tell us who Geronimo was. Yeah, so this, what what year is it? Is it is, uh... The film is set as 1880. Okay, so okay, I, I didn't, I couldn't remember if it said a specific year or not. Okay, well, here's actually here's what's interesting. So it it does not say 1880 in the film. I got that from Wikipedia, okay. but in the film it does mention the Republican National Convention in Chicago, which was 1880. Oh, okay, right, because it would have been an election year. Yeah, now I guess it may have been Chicago other years, but in 1880. In this month, so specifically we're in June of 1880, that is when there was a Republican convention in Chicago Okay, at the same time. So I'll say that's correct. Okay. Yeah, so Geronimo was a leader in an Apache tribe called the, I think this is how you say this, is Bidonkohe, I think is correct. I watched a YouTube video that told me how to pronounce that. So okay. if if that's not right, then you it's know, YouTube's be fault. mad at them. Yeah. <laughs> And he uh, he fought against both the Mexican and American governments um, during his time um, as an Apache leader. Uh, he was born in present-day Arizona in 1829. And in the tribe that he grew up in, fighting ability and courage were highly valued. And so he established himself as a skilled warrior, which allowed him, which basically let him be um, take a, a leadership position in his tribe at a young a young age. In the late 1850s, Geronimo's tribe actually signed a peace treaty with the United States, but like we saw in uh, Little Big Man, like we saw in Little Big Man, or we didn't see it in Little Big Man, but we talked about it when we talked about Little Big Man. The agreement is short-lived, you know, basically because the United States was just like reneging on all these deals, 
and American settlers continued to encroach on Apache land. So in 1876, Geronimo started leading groups of warriors to attack white settlements and white soldiers, and this was the Apache Wars. So it was a decades-long war between the Apaches and the Americans. It was a guerrilla-style conflict, so he was doing you know hit-and-run tactics and stuff, like we've seen with uh, a lot of these Indian Wars, just like in the Plains Wars, we talk about, you know, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse doing some of the exact same tactics. Despite being vastly outnumbered and outgunned, because again, he's fighting the U.S. government, Geronimo and his warriors were able to hold off the U.S. military for several years. And basically, it was just due to their, uh, they were a lot faster, they were more skilled horsemen, and they knew the terrain way better. Also makes me think of like an Afghanistan where you just can't do anything in Afghanistan because the locals just you have such a home field advantage and right and it's yeah similar thing where you know hit and run and then they just disappear you right. just disappear into the terrain and it's hard yeah it's hard to fight an enemy like that especially when when that wasn't really something that any of those Americans would have been necessarily trained to do right and that's something that they were just kind of trying to like figure out on the fly. Eventually, though, Geronimo did surrender to the U.S. government um, in 1886, and there was a few a few contributing factors for it. One, his tribe was pretty weakened, um, so even though they were successful in their attacks, it, it did make life harder on his tribe, the war did, and so a lot of his followers had been killed or captured, resources and food supplies were running low, and after years and decades of this conflict even though the u.s was slow to catch on they were starting to catch on and were becoming more effective at tracking and pursuing geronimo and his warriors making it harder for them to just disappear to the train like they had been able to do at the start of the campaign he was also offered relatively favorable favorable terms by an american general named uh, nelson miles who was the guy who was put in charge of capturing geronimo and he promised Geronimo that he and his followers would be allowed to return to Arizona, so return to their ancestral homeland, and would be provided with food and clothing and supplies for their journey and for when they got there. But like, we, like we've just talked about with the 1850s peace treaty, those promises were not kept, and after Geronimo surrendered, he and his followers were sent to reservations in Florida and Alabama. Also, another contributing factor to the surrender was that Geronimo had become kind of disillusioned with the war at this point and was kind of doing a cost-benefit, like, am I doing more for my people by continuing this fight? Oh. Or is it better to just kind of, like, cut my losses and is it just kind of futile to keep fighting against the U.S. military? Like, Is it a better life if we just admit defeat kind of thing? Right. They they might, they, they're probably just going to wait, you know, they're just going to keep sending more soldiers like they're you know they they have way more resources so like is it better to just try and get the best deal that i can now rather than continuing the fight and potentially risk d- the obliteration of my people right and he's getting into his 50s by that point too right so correct yeah yeah so this yeah in 1886 so 1829 to 1886 he's yeah, yeah he's, he's getting yeah. up there so he eventually he does surrender in 1886 but that's a it's like a, a very difficult decision for him. And actually, he is reported later on in his life to say that he regretted doing that. that mm. He regretted the, his decision to surrender. Well, because they got screwed over. 
on the terms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's a big thing too. Is like, you know, that's one of those like with the benefit of hindsight. Obviously, he's like, oh yeah, well we you know probably should have kept fighting if. But at the time, he thought that they were going to get actually a pretty a pretty sweet deal, or at least as as sweet of a deal as they could get with being resupplied and being allowed to go back to Arizona. But that you know they were lied to. So after the surrender, the trip to Florida and Alabama to the reservations for him and his followers was not an easy travel. Most of them died from disease and starvation along the way. And he was actually, after he was moved to Florida, the the Florida and Alabama um, reservations, he was then relocated to Fort Sill, Oklahoma in 1894. And he was kind of like a living museum display there. Oh, yeah. So he was essentially a prisoner of war for the U.S. government, but it's not not a prisoner in the sense where he's just like in a prison cell. He's kind of just like the property of the U.S. government is, is kind of how he's treated here. So it's kind of weird. Like he was a prisoner, but he was also a celebrity. And so... Like, he would be in parades and stuff, and he would, uh, like, people would come and see Geronimo basically as, like, this, like, a tourist attraction that's just this, this guy, this, this Apache warrior from right. Arizona who, like, tourists would come and see, and he would, you know, show, like, all of his, uh, like, traditional Apache clothing, and he would do, like, dances and stuff, but not in a way that was appreciated by the tourists like oh we want to learn more about this culture like oh, appreciate no. the history it was like a dance monkey dance like look at this freak and how you know how savage he is kind of uh. kind of thing and th- this whole time while he was while he was doing all that and people were people were paying money to have like their pictures taken with him or to buy souvenirs and stuff that he made uh, but this whole time he was also being pressured pretty heavily by the US government to like completely abandoned his traditional Apache ways and like try to assimilate into American society. But he resisted like the whole time. He was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then, uh, so eventually he was killed after being thrown from his horse in February of 1909. Okay. So he was born in June. So he would have been 70, 79 years old. Oh, wow. Thrown from a horse is 79. That's crazy. Yeah. So he was thrown from a horse and then he was, like, thrown from his horse and then wasn't found until the next day. So he had developed a uh, pretty bad case of pneumonia. Then he he died on February 17th, 1909. And he was reported by his nephew. Uh, his last words were, I should have never surrendered. I should have fought until I was the last man alive. Wow. So all the way until his until his dying day, he regretted the fact that he surrendered and basically allowed his allowed his people to be to be moved out of their their rightful territory basically which again likely still happens even if he keeps fighting but he would have just felt better about his life and choices if he had just fought to the bitter end and gone gone down swinging basically right so he's been depicted in numerous books and films and tv shows the most popular of which is probably the 1939 movie geronimo so it came out the same year Uh as stagecoach where he was played by an actor named Chief Thundercloud. Yeah, so in all of these depictions, he's, he's you know, portrayed as a fierce warrior who fought valiantly against the U.S. military. Some Native American activists criticize the depictions of Geronimo, saying that they perpetuate harmful stereotypes 
and fail to accurately portray the complex history of the resistance against American colonialism. But despite those criticisms, his legacy is seen by most as a symbol of indigenous resistance and resilience. In uh, 2009, there was a group of activists that launched a campaign to have his remains returned to his ancestral home in Arizona from Oklahoma, where they're at right now. Right. Um, And that it was unsuccessful, but it just goes to show like, I mean, that's 2009. That was not that long ago. Like there is still this, the, the importance of honoring like cultural traditions and of righting those historical wrongs, like that is still very much a goal of indigenous activist groups today. So he's essentially like a William Wallace type for the Apache. Is that 100%? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Huh. My one question was, you kept talking about everything in terms of fighting the U.S. Army, fighting the U.S. Army, but in the film, we get basically attacks on civilian caravans. Was there anything, which I'm sure happened, but is there, did you run across anything about Geronimo or the Apache specifically when it came to fighting the U.S. Army versus attacks on civilians? Or is it just kind of like, assumed it happened, but... I guess the way that I would say is that, and again, history, history is complicated, so... yeah. Attacks on civilians, one hundred percent was a was a tactic that was used, and in a lot of cases, it was because those civilians had moved into Apache. No, right? Land. They're essentially they're essentially trespassing. Right. You would argue under modern terms, yeah. right? So, like from the viewpoint of the Apache, like that's not it's not like a there's not like the hard and fast delineation between military and civilian. It was like, this is a, like... This is a hostile force in our land, right. Right, the American culture is pushing... So we are going to fight against every vestige of American culture that is trying to push its way into Apache territory. True, and I guess I wasn't trying to paint them as evil for attacking civilians because the whole idea is like that any anybody in their territory is by their viewpoint uh, invaders. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. And and it's it's used at like as a military tactic. So like, oh, if if we can make it really bad for civilians here and make it dangerous for them, they're not they're going to stop coming and maybe that will also influence like American policymakers, American military leaders to rethink how they want to deal with the Apache. Right. And I but I also hate to then flip it and compare it to Oh yeah, so if people are coming across your border, we should just light them up. It's like, right. well, no. At, at the same time, like, Americans were doing the same thing. Like, don't, don't I don't want to make it sound like the Apache were the only ones attacking civilians. Like, Americans were one hundred percent doing the same thing, attacking women, children, civilian encampments. Like we and we talked about it in the the little big man episode. Like, oh right, that it, that stuff was happening. Like, that's just the nature of conflict at the time. Is like. The honestly, the the delineation, the hard and fast delineation of like, oh, you're only supposed to attack military, you know. That's a 20th century invention. That that is a relatively recent and modern, you know, thinking on military conflict, like Geneva Convention kind of stuff. Up yeah. until five minutes ago, <laughs> in a historical sense, if you were fighting another group, it, it was just you were fighting everyone that was a part of that group. Right. Right. There. Yeah. I don't know the details of the Geneva Convention, but you think about war crimes, that's what's always brought up. Right. And that was, you know, following World War II. <laughs> but if you're thinking about it in just in, in just a, a purely, like, conflict sense and take all, you know, of your heart and emotion out of it, like, 
what is going to make it harder for a group to fight against you? To have less people and less resources, you want basically every time that they come into to conflict with you, you want them to like really struggle with the fact like, hey, we're going to like lose a bunch of civilians too, you know? Like it, right, it's it's right. a tactic that was used for thousands and thousands of years in all of human conflict. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's, and again, it's, and that ties into just life in general seems to historically have been less precious when mortality rates were higher anyway. So when like when right. you only had like a one in three chance of surviving past the age of five, well, then it wasn't also a big deal to get murdered when you were 25 for whatever reason. Like, it's just, Well, and think of it this way, too. Just the very concept of a professional military that is separate and distinct from the rest of your quote-unquote civilian society, oh, that doesn't right. exist in a, in Apache culture at this time. Right. You know, right. that the, the warriors, they are civilians. They're all civilians. Yeah, right. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. No, it's interesting. It's just, it's just uh, definitely something we don't think about or like like to ignore because we've we've talked about the you know europeans versus native americans kind of the whole whole of our timeline here and it's just something we just don't feel comfortable talking about it it ties into all the things we talked about with even like you know slavery or the fact that it still goes on today and the people at the time didn't just didn't want to think about it if it didn't directly involve them or us today we don't think about what labor goes into are making our devices and all those kinds of things. But it's the same kind of thing. We just, we just don't like to think about the fact that we wiped out the Native Americans to have our country today. And it, it's, it just sucks. It just sucks. And But it happened, yeah. and there's no going back. I, it's, right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what the answer is. I think the best you can do is just kind of acknowledge it is what it comes down to. You just need to acknowledge that these things happened and not try to pretend they didn't. Right. Again, not that we today should feel guilty we didn't have a part to play in any of that we just kind of reap the benefits of it i guess and but also too you then so what you do want to make sure we highlight you know they talk about how many of these native tribes are still dying out today or how many languages are being lost if we can't save these things so i think at the end of the day i think it's just about preserving the history of these cultures even if the damage has already long been done yeah man i don't even know how to transition out of that but yeah so the couple other notes (laughs) yeah the couple of the notes I had, we see we see in the film, we get a glimpse of the company name Wells Fargo early in the film. Oh, yeah. The company Wells Fargo does date back to 1852. And a lot of those old companies like then, they're still kind of around today in some kind of financial uh, regard. They started off in the, quote, express service. Basically, just all the stuff of getting goods and letters and people across the growing country quickly. So... Wells Fargo kind of started as one of those express services. And actually, the founders, Wells and Fargo, the the men with those last names, were also founding partners of American Express. Uh, oh, really? Which, 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 again, was initially just moving goods and services. And that gets, because of the economic benefits of that, that gets them tied into financial things, which is why then they still exist today in the financial realm, even that's, right. if that's not their initial thing, how they started. So yes, the American Express is still around today, was started by Wells and Fargo with some other guys, uh, and then they were out west is where they started Wells Fargo as like a side business separate from American Express, but yeah, the same guys were involved right. there. Right, well, and and Wells Fargo has like the iconography, like the visual iconography and their brand, like with the stagecoach and the horses. And yes, stuff. absolutely. They still very much, right, you know, right allude to that in their in their logo right so it seems weird it's like well it's just a bank it's or whatever it's, but it's well no it was it was more than that it was about more than that in the 1800s 
We also see, or we hear, there is another historical figure they mention in the film other than Geronimo, and that's Phil Sheridan, yet again, comes up. Yep. So uh, we talked about him in old Chicago and with the Civil War stuff. So again, not a household name when it comes to famous people from the time, but definitely apparently a guy that would have been a household name in the 1880s and in the years following the Civil War as just uh, a very important uh, American at, at the time. Okay, so then the last thing I wanted to mention was the 1880 election year that we kind of get reference to, where they hmm. basically it's the newspaper guys are like, stop the presses, put the Chicago GOP convention on hold, and we're going to run this story about the Ringo kid getting shot down or whatever, because we're just kind of, I'm trying to call my shot and predict the ending of this gunfight that we get in the film, which actually we'll talk a little bit more about the film here too. So, yeah, we're in June of 1880 then, because that's when the GOP convention was happening. It is kind of interesting. So we mentioned in 76, you get Rutherford B. Hayes elected, because Grant chose not to run for a third term, um, even though he was contemplating it. Well, after four years of Hayes, and Hayes wasn't going to run again, Grant throws his his uh, his hat back in the ring. So Grant, Ulysses S. Grant actually did seek a third term after yeah. four years off but fails to get the Republican nomination. And it actually ends up being a kind of a split convention, and the eventual winner of the GOP nomination, James Garfield, was almost kind of a dark horse compromise candidate. It's like, well, if we can't decide up here, we don't want Grant, you don't want this guy. Actually, what about Garfield over here? And they kind of yeah. bring him to the top, he gets the nomination, and is then elected president with Vice President Chester Arthur and... They go on to win, and then actually just uh, less than a year after he is sworn in, Garfield is assassinated, and yep. Chester Arthur becomes president. And again, I, I, and I don't really have much more to say about those presidencies or the politics of all that. I'm just, I'm just trying to keep continuing. We now have mentioned every president up through Chester yeah, Arthur. right? So I'm just trying to at least make sure we kind of fit them into the timeline here, and so yeah, with the, with the film itself, the, my one last note was that that final chase battle scene with the Apache attacking the stagecoach, super well done for 1939. Oh yeah, like I we yeah. back to rewatch it to be like, now how did they do that? And it's so because it, it's an interesting blend, and you kind of have a better eye than I do on this uh, for this stuff. So it's a mix of when you have the actual actors, it is all rear projection, which doesn't right. hold up super well. But you can see movies even in the early 90s that were still using rear projection if you kind of know what to look for. Basically, they have a yeah. screen playing the background action. So it's actually like almost like a movie is playing while they're filming people on stage in front of that screen that's playing. Right. Something. The time that is that I think is most noticeable or the time that you're able to pick it out the most, even like up through later decades, is a lot of, when, when they're driving. Yes, you can see out the window. It's very clearly right. not really at the wind, that background. Yeah. And it's it's very expensive and there's a lot riskier and labor intensive to actually film someone driving in a car so doing it on a soundstage where you just have you know like a couple moving lights and then you rear project right everything outside the windows there's nothing that's actually moving that's way easier you can do multiple takes you can reset right. the background to be exactly yeah. what you need yeah it makes a lot of sense but when right. you recognize it it just now is the point where it takes me out of a film because it's so obvious yeah but they did a great job of editing back and forth between that and some spectacularly shot action scenes where they are yes. actually it's all it's all the stunt people or whatever but it's 
there no it's the carriage going with the horses and the horses all around very much like we talk, talked about the the buffalo chase uh, the buffalo hunt and dance with wolves right so good this is yeah. basically that they just didn't put the actual actors out there right and 60 years earlier yes yeah so i was and and they did come back and forth very effectively it's yeah, for I I could definitely see in 1939 this blowing people's minds like holy cow that that fight scene the editing in this movie is pristine like it's yeah. an absolute masterclass in editing especially when you think about the fact that a lot of that stuff a lot of those cuts were just were done in camera true so like John Ford would have been like all right I want exactly this shot and then cut and then we're gonna stop recording and this wasn't like. I mean, they they did editing, you know. By 39, you could edit pretty well. Obviously. Right, they did post-production yeah. editing later, but a lot of it was still done in camera, which oh, okay. it, for how well it came out is is wild. Yeah. Like, the dude is an absolute savant. Yes, yeah. Just, there was a one little part, even, it took me, I had to rewatch it like three times, but I was like, I swear that's John Wayne up top. But the, the cut was so good that I kind of missed where it's like, oh, nope, that one shot where you see John Wayne's face, that is rear projection. But it cuts so quick back and forth between the live shot of the actual, you know, filmed on location part. I was like, man, looks so good for, especially for 1939. I'm not saying it's yeah. perfect, but for 1939, holy cow, was that a well shot scene? Yeah. Oh, I I had one one little note. If anybody watches this movie and wants to go see like some of the cool looking like desert landscape stuff. Oh, right. I guess a, a lot of it was shot in Monument Valley. Which is Utah, but yeah. It's yeah. like Utah, Arizona border area, like southern Utah, northern Arizona. Which John Ford and Monument Valley are like peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> like Yeah, yeah. The iconic duo of him shooting all that stuff there. And it is kind of neat, even though it's in black and white. That was one of his nominations, too, was black and white cinematography. And just, yeah, it's beautifully shot against that iconic landscape of the American Southwest that... I mean, honestly, you figure if people weren't traveling at the time as much or, you know, not everybody could travel back in the 30s or even today. And so, yeah, John Ford was putting these you know, beautiful images on film and then these stories uh, and kind of making them famous. Like you could, you could argue John Ford made Monument Valley as iconic as it is today uh, with all his movies. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, 100 percent. Okay, yeah, so that's a glimpse into the Old West, and we're going to kind of keep that ball rolling and just go a year later on the timeline when we get to the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And a quick call to action if you want to help us out. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave us a review and leave us a five-star review, please. And or share this podcast with a friend you think might like it. And don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. <laughs>